If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Much more to get to on the program this afternoon, but I want to uh, focus back on the situation in our grocery stores uh, and the importance of keeping those uh, food supply chains open, keeping our store shelves stocked. But there's also the question of prices. And, you know, it's certainly possible, given everything going on right now, uh, that there could be pressures on the system and possibly as a result, price increases. So is it something we should be bracing for? And is there any concern about what might be referred to as price gouging? We Anecdotally, I, I've seen, you know, complaints on social media and elsewhere uh, that the price of whatever product X is, is higher than it should be. Uh, you know, is, is there an opportunity right now for, for stores maybe to take advantage of this situation? I, I suppose possibly. Uh, but at the same time, you know, supply and demand and all the factors that go into that are going to have an impact on prices. So how, how do we measure that? How do we gauge what's going on? Joining us uh, for some thoughts on all of that. Very pleased to welcome back to the program, uh, Sylvain Charlebois. He is uh, Senior Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Dr. Charlebois, always great to chat with you. Thanks for making some time for us here today. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, on the question of food prices, are, are we seeing any kinds of pressures, any sort of issues in, in, the, uh, in the system, as it were, that, that might possibly lead to some uh, price increases? Well, so first of all, uh, last week we released a, an update of, of Canada's food price report uh, as a result of, of, of COVID. Uh, we were getting a lot of requests about uh, about prices, how food prices will be affected by COVID, and, and frankly, looking at our models, the Canadian dollar is actually a bigger issue right now because of, and you guys would know this, oil. Um, mm-hmm. What happened a few weeks ago pretty much at the same time as COVID, really, uh, when the Saudis decided to uh, flood the world with uh, their oil, uh, the Canadian dollar actually went down uh, five, six cents. Uh, it's up a bit now because of what's happening with oil, but still, uh, it's a cheaper, cheaper dollar, and to import products will cost more, so we are expecting vegetable uh, vegetable prices to be affected, uh, and also a little bit uh, bakery. And so overall, no changes. In food service, we are expecting some discounting, and uh, that's good news for consumers because of uh, once we're actually on the other side of, of COVID, uh, the pandemic, we are expecting a bit of a price war. But here's the thing. Uh, based on some of the facts we have in wholesaling, we, we are concerned about meat prices uh, because at Farmgate, a lot of ranchers out there in Alberta are actually making less, and they've been making less for a while now. But food prices uh, at the meat counter were still going up up until last week, so we're still looking at into this right now. So it's not it's not clear why then. 
No, uh, I think it's a wholesaling issue. Uh, of course, around Easter, a lot of things can happen at the meat counter. Meat prices are more popular. Just, we're just about to start the, the barbecue season. Uh, of course, with, with, with everything that's going on, the barbecue season uh, uh, thing is a bit different because we're mostly at home cooking away. Uh, and so there's no novelty there. But generally speaking, uh, we are expecting meat prices to go up by four to six percent, but based on the data we have, we're, we're north of ten, and in some cases, north of fifteen since the start of the year. So that's quite, that's a little bit much. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, otherwise, though, as you say, where where we're seeing slight increases on some goods, uh, some decreases uh, on others, does does it all then more or less seem to be balancing out? I, I think so. Yeah. So again, we're, we're we were expecting in December a year, and I think we spoke about this you and I uh, three four months ago. Uh, we were expecting uh, the food inflation rate to be at about four uh, percent three months ago. We're still thinking uh, that's exactly uh, what's going to happen. Uh, looking into the future, though, uh, we're, we need to be careful because uh, the cost to operate a store nowadays has gone up. Uh, security guards, cleaning this, different yeah. protocols, uh, higher wages across the board. Uh, even though uh, uh, wage increases were temporary, I don't think they will be. I think they will uh, remain uh, just to basically attract more talent and things like that. So and we are expecting more pressure uh, be put on grocers to increase prices in going into 2021, but that's still far away. Now, on the question of price gouging, and you know, certainly there, there's been a lot of talk about gouging. Even the Ontario government has taken some steps to try to crack down on it. I mean, it's kind of a subjective term to begin with, but at least in terms of food prices, is there any evidence that, that anything of the sort has been going on? No. Well, it's hard to prove. <laughs> well, uh, look at the, yeah. what the look at the bread uh, price uh, fixing scheme, which happened for 14 years with seven companies. Uh, when uh, Loblaw decided to approach the Competition Bureau uh, and outed itself along with uh, with Western Bakeries back in 2015, um, they got immunity and it allowed the Competition Bureau to investigate for two years. And and it's still ongoing. Uh, it's been going on for five years, and the cost is, uh, is more than half a million dollars. So to really uh, prove beyond reasonable doubt that uh, prices were inflated artificially is very difficult to prove. And I suppose, I mean, one, one counter to price gouging is that we, we still do have some fairly meaningful competition, don't we? Oh, absolutely. I think the key here is to remember that food inflation is a healthy thing to have. It's important to understand that inflation is very much part of the economy that we have. We need inflation. But the sweet spot with food uh, would be anywhere between 1.5 to 2.5%. Uh, at 4%, of course, it's a bit much. But here's the thing. Uh, with COVID, we're saving money. We're 
not going out. <laughs> We're not going out as much. And when you go out, you can't really shut your dollar as much as when, you, when you're actually cooking. And I think that's going to be a bit of a game changer coming out of this. Uh, if people cook more, they'll actually get addicted to saving money a little bit as they actually better their cooking skills at home. So it's going to be interesting to see how things go uh, after, after this pandemic. That's a good point. Now, it was an interesting point you made as well in, in your piece on this this week, because you make the argument that when it comes to like what the Ontario government has done, these new regulations about price gouging, it might not have a meaningful impact in terms of what's happening on the ground. But when it comes to public confidence and reassuring the public, there, there, there is some value in that. Oh, absolutely. The, the Ford government actually did the right thing to reassure the public. I don't think it has anything to do with the industry. I think the industry is there uh, in good faith. Uh, but let, let's face it, you're, you're just a picture away from getting your brand being destroyed on social media. I mean, if you actually do want to right. abuse your power as a grocer, that's the risk you take. Uh, I'm not sure any, any grocers are willing to do that. Of course, there are independents that have been caught and been shamed publicly. But I think the Ford government intended to reassure the public at the right time, uh, especially uh, during a time when people actually feel a little bit food insecure and, and have maybe have lost their, their jobs. I mean, look at Alberta right now. Uh, Premier uh, Kenny announced today that uh, Alberta could reach a, a, an unemployment rate of 25%. I mean, a lot of people out there are going to be on a tight budget, so you want to make sure that, uh, that uh, the government has, uh, has the people's back. Absolutely. Well, we'll leave it there. Always appreciate the insights. Sylvain Charlebois, thanks so much for joining us here today. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. All the best. Uh, Sylvain Charlebois, Senior Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University, keeping a close eye on Canada's food chain and what it means for us on the retail side of things. Look, I think it's pretty reasonable that if China has some equipment to spare, be it masks or or anything else that can be useful in dealing with this pandemic, that it's not unreasonable. We look to them to share that if they have uh, that available. But I think at the same time, we, we need to watch for, you know, what China's motivations might be when it comes to helping here. And I think there's a broader conversation to be had about how China is finding ways to exploit this pandemic situation. Now, for example, I want to play a clip of the prime minister here before we go to our next guest, Huawei. Uh, the technology company, obviously uh, very important, as we've seen in China, has made a considerable donation to Canada of N95 masks and other personal protective equipment. The prime minister was asked today what we should read into that and whether there's an expectation that is, as Huawei makes these kind of donations, are they expecting a favorable decision when it comes to 5G? Here's what the prime minister said. Um, we are happy to be receiving donations and shipments from many companies in Canada and around the world. Uh, we need to make sure that that uh, equipment is uh, to Canadian standards, and we will make sure that it gets to the healthcare and frontline workers who need it. Uh, that is our priority right now. Uh, but receiving uh, goods from a particular company won't necessarily uh, uh, imply at all that we regard different situations uh, with that company any different down the future. Okay, so, you know, with regard to Huawei, that's probably just a small portion of, of what China's looking at here in terms of advancing its broader interest and agenda globally uh, and maybe emerging from all of this as uh, a, much, a much bigger superpower. And so I think that's something we should be concerned about.
Joining us uh, to talk more about uh, all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Terry Glavin, uh, author, uh, columnist, and journalist. I have a great piece uh, at mclean's.ca this week on how this pandemic is the breakthrough that China's president has been waiting for. Terry, so great to have you with us here. Welcome back to the program. Well, it's nice to talk to you, Rob. Well, and hopefully you're keeping well. So as I say, I mean, you know, this business with Huawei and, and how generous they are in donating all of this to Canada, I mean, that, that's kind of a microcosm of this much bigger issue, isn't it? Oh, yeah, it is. Um, I don't think we should be surprised that, you know, suddenly we're seeing a lot of uh, medical supplies coming out of Canada, everything from ventilators to masks and N95 masks and so on, is that uh, Beijing went into this with that advantage that, uh, you know, one of their key strategies, their their economic development strategies, uh, involves capturing the uh, global supply chain in key strategic sectors. And before before we went into this, uh, China was the uh, primary global distributor and pr- producer and distributor of masks of all kinds and ventilators and personal protective devices of various sorts. And in fact, had cornered something like 70 to 95% of the American market of, uh, you know, everything from ibuprofen to vitamin C, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, the other thing, too, is that um, there, had, there was, in the weeks leading up to, you know, Canada finally getting its act together and uh, joining 80 other countries in the world and shutting down uh, the traffic from China, uh, closing the borders and what have you, um, there was a massive effort organized primarily by the United Front Work Department of the Chinese Communist Party and uh, state-owned corporations and national champions, as they call them, like Huawei and uh, PetroChina and so on. A lot of it was organized out of the embassies and consulates in Canada and Australia and other countries, a massive uh, buying effort. Uh, you know, the stores, the, the, these wholesalers, uh, all of the supply was was shipped back in special flights to China. Um, the You know, some suppliers in Canada have said that, you know, all of their inventory was gone because, and Canada's inventory was effectively depleted by this effort. So, yeah, I mean, they're sending some back. That's great. Mm-hmm. Some of it uh, we're buying. Uh, and, you know, in the case of Italy, you know, China was passing off great donations of equipment to, to Italy that was actually purchased by the Italian government after the Italian government had made donations to China in the early goings. And a lot of it is also just traffic between the Red Cross agency in China and its sister organization here in Canada, you know, as sort of a reciprocal payback for equipment that went over. The thing that I think, you know, that we really should be keeping our eye on is that it is in the interests of the Chinese Economic uh, Planning Department uh, to say nothing of its, its, you know, massive propaganda department to have countries like Canada happily accepting uh, gifts of this sort uh, from Huawei and other uh, Chinese... uh, fronts and agencies and corporations uh, because the last thing they want to see is uh, is countries in the developed world um, breaking uh, can, uh, China's command and control 
of the medical supply, uh, medical equipment supply chain. So we should, we should remember that. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I think, you know, we're really at that sort of inflection point. We're past it now that people have been talking about for some long while, uh, about, uh, you know, the sort of inflection point between the primacy of liberal democracies and the, you know, the, the international rules-based order, as we describe it, and a kind of a brave new world uh, that has been remade in the image and likeness of the Chinese Communist Party. This is really, and I don't want to be alarmist about this, but, um, you know, this is, this, this is really a, geopolitically and in terms of the global economy and Canada's economy, which is so reliant on trade, you know, this is a really important moment. And we've already made absolutely catastrophic decisions based on disinformation and misinformation that uh, came to us from the World Health Organization uh, via or via the World Health Organization out of Beijing. And uh, we really have to be on our toes about this. Well, I think you're right. And I mean, you know, the, the propaganda goes into it as well, not just in terms of how China's trying to, to make it seem like they're, they're the generous superpower helping all these countries deal with it. Even the narrative at home, that President Xi is, you know, the, the hero who conquered this virus. They're, they're trying yeah. to, you know, sow seeds of doubt about where this, this virus originated. I mean, we, we already know that, but, um, you know, it, it all plays into this, this narrative, doesn't it? That at home, they're trying to per- portray uh, President Xi as the hero and internationally to portray themselves as, as kind of heroes. Exactly this situation right and, and what is the end game there well the end game is i mean thank thank goodness you know that the the, the, Ch- the chinese government the, the regime has actually been quite explicit and candid about this is that the end game is to eclipse north america and europe um in the in the global order um utterly and completely and uh the the all of the information out of china public statements that uh, senior party leaders have made, uh, that party leaders in corporate and state-owned enterprise leaders at the provincial level and at the level of the prefectures have made, is that now's our moment, and we have to put this into hyperdrive. We have to accelerate uh, these ambitions of ours, and um, they're doing exactly that. (laughs) And I don't think we should be, you know, silly about it. I don't think we should be Pollyannas about this. It's happening. It's happening now. And, um, you know, I'm not, I have to say, I, I, I don't, you know, I've been kind of holding back in my criticism of the federal authorities in Canada because, you know, this is one of those weird moments in history where public trust in government is really, you know, the most precious uh, public sure, yeah. good. Um, but, you know, it's, to say the least, it's not exactly a good look when the European editor of the, of the China Daily, which is a wholly owned, uh, directly owned propaganda sheet of the Central Committee of the Communist Party of China, is praising our health minister, Patty Hadjou, as a role model for the world, and blasting Canadian journalists as being mischief makers and paparazzi for merely asking the question, you know, what do you hear, what do you think about, you know, all of the intelligence communities and the Five Eyes, and lately particularly the CIA, telling us that uh, the uh, Chinese have been under-reporting and misreporting its data on infection rates and uh, contagious lethality and numbers. And, and to have Patty Hadjou, as she did last, last Thursday, castigate 
uh, a reporter and, 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 and browbeat a journalist mm-hmm. for merely asking that question. The irony there is that Curie, and she says, oh, no, you know, the bad is good is, you know, to, to believe otherwise is to believe conspiracy theory. It's kind of two, two ironies there. The first is that the Chinese government is actually the primary source of conspiracy theories about the coronavirus at the moment. And they have been deliberately for, for quite some time. And the second irony is that the Chinese government, long before Patty had you said they were not under-reporting their infections, admitted that it was under-reporting its infections. It was not counting asymptomatic cases. It was counting them, but it wasn't adding those cases to its total tally of, of infections. In fact, it had become so scandalous that there were actually riots uh, in Hubei about this because people knew that the numbers were, didn't reflect the reality. And so on the Monday of last week, Li Qiang, Premier, and Wang Yi, Foreign Minister, they both uh, you know, instructed Chinese medical authorities to to start doing it properly, to to stop omitting uh, asymptomatic cases from the tally. And on Monday, the Chinese authorities actually started including asymptomatic cases. So, you know, I mean, it, it's just it's it's worse than comical because here you have Patty Hadju, you know, claiming that the Chinese were not committing. A, you know, a, a, an extremely irresponsible transgression that the Chinese government had already admitted to yeah. committing. Uh, and then being praised to the skies by the Chinese Communist Party. Um, it, you know, it's, it's uh, we, you know, public trust in the government is something that we should take as a given. And... Um, you know, the, the biggest and most ca- catastrophic mistake, of course, was waiting so long to, uh, to properly uh, screen and, and, and shut down uh, flights at arrivals from China. And you, you have to remember that, that, when that when Canada struck on that policy and dug in its heels, that, well, we're going to keep the flights coming in and we're not going to shut down the you know, shut down flights, and it's bad, and it stigmatizes people, and so on, um, is that when we did that, uh, was in the first week of February, um, and in the first week of February, uh, the, the, the Chinese government and its public information department and its foreign affairs ministry was insisting that the coronavirus was nowhere near as lethal as the the common flu, and that it uh, there was no evidence uh, of uh, human-to-human contagion, of human-to-human tra- transmission. That's why we kept the flights coming in, was based on this most lethal type and most, most, most lethal act of disinformation. So, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty, and you know bygones and all that kind of stuff but if 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 the government doesn't come clean with us about how they've screwed up here and look be honest about it right mm-hmm. we relied on the world health organization because the who is who you rely on you know even though you know all of the evidence was that the who was just passing on rubbish that was passed on to to its people by beijing i mean just admit that you screwed up and 
promise that you you know you'll be more careful and you won't screw up again and you won't mislead us and you know that that's uh it's it's uh we're we're, we're at a really critical point and i mean we haven't seen a a national emergency like this since the second world war and it would be really useful i think if uh if our government actually was straight with us about who the enemy is yeah exactly folks can read your piece it's up at mcleans.ca terry always great chatting with you thanks for making some time for us here today Take care. All the best. Uh, That is Terry Glavin, uh, author, journalist, uh, columnist. Uh, You can read his piece. Uh, Again, the headline, the uh, coronavirus pandemic is the breakthrough Xi Jinping has been waiting for. So, you know, just to to understand that uh, there there are some geopolitical openings here for China, uh, that if they want to, quote unquote, help in certain ways, fine, fair enough. But we also need to recognize that there there is an agenda at play here. So it's been a lot of conversation about the wearing of masks in trying to to assist the battle against COVID-19, as it were, and, and some shifting advice from public health officials. I mean, first and foremost, obviously, and especially when it comes to masks like N95 masks, to make sure that healthcare workers have what they need to stay protected. But in terms of members of the public being out amongst other members of the public, is there an argument to be made for masks? The argument's a little different when it comes to more simple cloth or even surgical masks, that it's not about protecting yourself, but it's about protecting others, that we're all trying to collectively act as though we have the virus and and trying to prevent it from spreading it to others. So that's important to know when it comes to masks. Also, just what we need to know about putting on masks, taking off masks, how to dispose of those masks, etc. So there's that side of it, too. I want to play for you here. The prime minister was asked uh, a question today about this public health advice. Here's that clip. Prime Minister Janet Silver, Global News. Yesterday, Dr. Tan said one should wear a non-medical mask if physical distancing was not possible. But there's still a lot of confusion about when and where one should wear a mask. Maybe you could clarify for Canadians regarding non-medical masks, whether a person is pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic, should they wear a non-surgical mask when they go outside, even if they think they can physical distance? I think those are exactly the kinds of questions that people should be uh, taking the advice of medical experts from. I am not a medical expert. What I have heard from medical experts is that the most important thing is for people to stay home. If they do have to go out, they need to keep two meters apart and look to go out as minimally as possible. Uh, We need to wash our hands regularly. We need to cough into our elbows. These are the things that we know will uh, slow and arrest the spread of this disease through this country. my understanding of what Dr. Tam explained yesterday uh, is that if people want to wear a mask, uh, that is okay. It protects others more than it protects you because it prevents you from breathing or, or, or speaking uh, moistly on them. Oh, what a terrible image. Uh, but uh, it actually uh, is something that people can do uh, in certain situations. Uh, Our focus, though, is making sure that people don't think that wearing masks can uh, mean that they don't have to social distance as much or can go out more often. The advice remains, stay home and uh, and, uh, and, uh, keep two meters apart. Okay, well, speaking moistly is, is an interesting way of describing it, but it does speak to why there's perhaps some, some reason why if you have to be in close quarters, 
where there can be some benefit. But if you're social distancing, if you're staying at home, there's less need. So joining us to talk a bit more about the evidence and the advice from public health officials and all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program uh, from the University of Calgary's uh, Coming School of Medicine, Dr. Bayan Masagi, infectious disease specialist and clinical assistant professor. Dr. Masagi, thank you so, uh, so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, so what are, what are your thoughts on, you know, this advice around masks and, and what people need to know about, you know, both sides of this? Yeah, so uh, I agree uh, with the, the clip that you played there. Uh, essentially, what we know is that, you know, up until this point in time, masking was not being recommended for the general public. Uh, there were several reasons for that. Um, one was that it was believed that masks... Um, essentially cause people to have a false sense of security um, and that using masks that are um, incorrectly fitted or of poor quality um, or reusing single-use masks may actually lead to more self-contamination rather than protection from getting infected with the virus and with with other uh, respiratory viruses and also there was a strong emphasis on preserving the supply for healthcare workers now, with this new directive coming from um, Dr. Teresa Tam, um, I, I wouldn't call this a complete 180 on what we have been saying because uh, essentially we're still saying that masks, homemade masks, are not really meant to protect the wearer. They're uh, actually meant to protect people other than the wearer. Mm -hmm. So if I go out into a place, um, you know, as as was mentioned, I should be trying to avoid all public places to the best of my abilities. But if I end up going grocery shopping or something like that, and I wear a homemade mask, and I happen to sneeze or cough during um, the pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic uh, phase of the illness, um, I'm really protecting all those around me from having as much contact with my respiratory droplets. So that's kind of the, the crux of the, the recommendation to now wear homemade masks uh, for the public. Right. Yeah. And as you say, I mean, you know, if we're following other guidelines, uh, distancing and washing hands and staying at home, there, there's clearly less need for a mask in the first place then. Correct. Absolutely. And should be reemphasized again that uh, wearing a homemade mask is not a substitute for, but is really an adjunctive add-on yeah. to those measures that we know are so effective, like hand hygiene, cough etiquette, uh, social distancing, and avoiding touching our eyes, nose, and mouth. Right. And I mean, it also speaks to how, you know, what, you know, our understanding of this virus and, and how it's spread and, you know, those, the coughs or the sneezes and the, those droplets that can be spread from, from symptomatic individuals, that's part of it. But I guess what's tricky about this virus is, you know, how it can be spread by, pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic individuals and, and maybe in ways that don't necessarily involve coughing or sneezing. So how much, how much of a challenge does that represent in, in terms of, you know, battling this virus and keeping it in check? So, so that does represent a, a big challenge and, and you're absolutely correct. You know, we, we actually, based on the evidence to date, we don't believe that asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic spread accounts for a large portion of the spread of the virus. But it, it may account for, you know, five or six percent of spread. Mm -hmm. And uh, and you're absolutely right. It's um, known to be quite a sticky virus and it can stick to different uh, surfaces for different lengths of time. 
And so environmental contamination with people's coughs and sneezes, um, you know, if I cough or sneeze uh, on my phone and I pass it to a friend to look at a picture and they, you know, touch my phone and then touch their eyes, nose or mouth, that's um, actually quite a, uh, a good way of transmitting the virus. So, so you're absolutely right in terms of um, the whole environmental contamination piece and the, the challenges posed uh, in terms of uh, needing to ensure that we are careful in the environment, that we do a great job of uh, cleaning high-touch surfaces. Uh, it's been shown that a low-level disinfectant is actually all that's necessary to kill the virus, so it's not like you need a very high concentration of bleach or something like that. Uh, but good environmental cleaning needs to happen, and we do need to wash our hands frequently when we come into contact with different surfaces. Yeah. You know, as we look, you know, further down the road, and I mean, trying to come out of this situation where now I think, you know, getting the, the virus in check, keeping it at manageable levels, testing and tracing, developing new therapies. I mean, that that's all part of our arsenal. But I mean, do masks become more relevant in that conversation when maybe people are starting to get back to work, more people are using public transit or if, if shopping malls are open? How much does it change the conversation around mask wearing, do you think? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think, um, you know, at this point in time where, uh, as was mentioned by the Prime Minister, we're all being advised to stay at home for the most part, um, you know, there, there may, may not be a great need for people to, to consider wearing masks um, because hopefully we should all be greater than two metres apart most, if not all the time. But as some of these um, public health restrictions uh, begin to um, become lessened or begin to be decreased uh, once we've sort of seen the peak of our cases and we sort of want to get the uh, economy running again. Uh, and people are potentially going to be in more crowded areas. I, th I think it makes sense to uh, emphasize this sort of uh, adjunctive measure more. Um, and I think that makes logical sense. And I guess just as we've kind of trained people to to adjust to this new reality, we, we now know what social distancing means. We hadn't even heard of that concept, you know, a few months ago. I, I guess there, there's going to be a need to, to educate the public, too, that when it comes to masks, how to put them on, how to take them off, how and when to dispose of them. There, there's going to have to be that messaging, too, I would imagine. Absolutely. And um, I'm happy to run through just a quick few points to keep in mind that yeah. uh, if you are using a mask, it's important prior to putting on the mask to uh, ensure clean hands with alcohol-based hand rub or soap and water for 20 seconds. Uh, when you're putting on the mask, um, place it carefully and ensure it covers um, your entire mouth and nose and tie it securely uh, at the back to minimize any gaps between the face and the mask. And then avoid touching it while wearing it. And uh, when you're removing it, um, ensure that you don't touch the front part of the mask, which is uh, the contaminated portion of the mask. Untie it from the back and without touching the front, discard it. Uh, important to, again, use either alcohol-based hand rub or soap and water to clean your hands after removing the mask. And also anytime you inadvertently touch the front of the mask. A um, couple other important things to keep in mind are to replace masks as soon as they become damp, visibly dirty, or worn out, and uh, to not reuse single-use masks. Now, um, you know, we're not recommending that the general public use surgical masks in the first place. 
as these have been um, sort of uh, deemed important for our frontline healthcare workers, uh, and we have a limited supply. Um, but you know, if you're using a single-use mask, it should not be used more than once. All right, some great points. Uh, we'll leave it there for now, Dr. Masaki. Thank you so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Really appreciate this. Thank you very much for having me. Have a great day. All, right. All the best. You as well. Uh, Dr. Bayan Masagi, infectious disease specialist, clinical assistant professor at the Cummings School of Medicine. So his thoughts on kind of where the advice is at on, on wearing masks and, you know, it's, it will become more relevant, I, I think, once we're in a position where we're starting to return back to some sense of normalcy. So we talk a lot about uh, testing and tracing and how we can use that to keep this virus in check. And, and it's part of what we're doing right now. I mean, the, you know, the testing and tracing can mean a lot of different things. And in places like South Korea and Taiwan, they've used a lot of technology. The idea where we can use cell phone data, where if you have a confirmed case, uh, you're able to use cell phone data to contact others who were in close, potential close contact with that confirmed case and have them get tested and, and so on. So. The idea, the more testing you can do, the more you know about the extent of the problem and the more you can try to keep it in check. So Alberta's in a good position in, in a lot of ways because we've done a lot of testing, more testing than, than any other province, in fact. But there's also the other side of it, right, is to go back and, and do contact tracing. Once we have a confirmed case, are we able to go and find others who might have potentially been exposed to that virus? And that is happening now in Alberta. We're not using that kind of technology like some other countries are. Kind of almost like good old-fashioned uh, detective work. And a uh, big part of that effort uh, involves the University of Calgary. Joining us to talk more about uh, some of what's being done in terms of contact tracing in Alberta. Very pleased to welcome to the program Dr. Lauren uh, Bilinski. Uh, who's uh, with Public Health and Preventative Medicine, uh, the Family Medicine uh, Department of the University of Calgary. Uh, Dr. Belinsky, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. All right, so talk a bit about how uh, the University of Calgary then is, is playing a role in Alberta Health Services efforts to, to do more contact tracing. We're really lucky that we've been able to partner with the university. We have 300 medical students who are helping us with this contact tracing. Um, a large portion of those are from the University of Calgary, current senior medical students, but we also have students from the University of Alberta as well. And so what's involved then in, in contact tracing? Yeah, that's a good question. Contact tracing, as you alluded to before, is kind of the detective work of public health medicine. Essentially, when we get a test back in the lab that says it's positive, it's our students and the nurses who do this on a day-to-day -day basis that call up this patient and they ask a little bit about what they've been doing over the past couple weeks and we try and dig down and understand where the virus came from and we're also doing a bit of a safety check to see if the virus could have been spread to anybody else. So what kind of questions might that involve then for example? Yeah so when a student calls up someone the first thing we want to know is how somebody's doing of course. We want to know if they're ill or if they're feeling okay or if we need to act on that and, for example, get some people connected with healthcare. But once we're past that, then we start asking a bit about their history and what they've been doing. So we might ask, for example, if they went to a barbecue with friends, if they went out and cooked cookies with grandma and grandpa, do they have a medical appointment with their dentist or their doctor? 
And some of these questions are to figure out, is this maybe where they got the virus from? But we're also asking similar questions to figure out, did they come in contact with people who could potentially now have the virus? And then what do you do with that information? Once, you know, someone says, well, yes, I, I was uh, at a party uh, a couple of weeks ago, or I did go here, whatever the answer might be. If you've got some information then that you could perhaps act on, what's, what's the next step? It's a little bit of a domino effect. When we find one person, um, either that's come back positive through the lab, or if through um, our histories we found somebody who sounds like they might be positive, then we just keep going and asking the same questions. So all the people, for example, at like a barbecue or a party, as you said, we would ask all of them, how are you feeling? Maybe they have the virus. And sometimes uh, we have to order testing as well to confirm and so what's your sense of how, how effective uh, this has been thus far then in, in tracking down potential cases? Well, we know from in other countries, I think you alluded to Japan and South Korea and Singapore as mm-hmm. well. We know that seeing how those countries did contact tracing, that being able to reach out to people, let them know that they're positive, and also having that human connection with the healthcare system, that's really effective in getting people to self-isolate. And when people are self-isolating, then they can't spread the virus to other people out there. So from other countries, we've seen that it's quite effective. And I think from our own interactions with patients here in Alberta, there's overall been a really positive response to our students. And we've heard that people are self-isolating. Yeah, and it's remarkable, too, because I think there's now upwards of about 400 students involved in this. Is that right? I think the last number I had was about 300 students. 300. Uh, And and the fact that this came together so quickly, I mean, you know, as I was reading, (laughs) normally this kind of thing, to to put it all together, might take months, but this this really came together really quickly, didn't it? Yeah. So to give you an idea of scale, our regular communicable disease nursing force is about 50 highly trained nurses. And then when we started to see that the numbers were increasing, it was a particular Saturday when we noticed we had more numbers than our team could usually deal with on a Sunday. And it was 9 or 10 p.m. uh, with partnering with the university. We sent out an email, and within a couple hours, 100 medical students had volunteered to help. Wow. It was amazing. Yeah, it's incredible. Now, what's your understanding? I mean, I I guess we may need at some point something more permanent in place uh, in terms of a testing and and tracing sort of structure. But is is this going to continue for the foreseeable future? What what have you been told? For the foreseeable future, yes. We're looking at other uh, healthcare students or other healthcare workers that could perhaps come and help us uh, more long term. But I do have to give credit to the nurses that are here all the time because there is a group of people who do contact tracing every single day for all sorts of different illnesses. It's just that coronavirus has so many people that we needed, or so many people that are ill, we needed a lot more people to help us contact trace. Yeah. Well, it's great to see Alberta leading on this front too. Uh, Lauren, we'll leave yeah. it there. I appreciate you making some time for us here today. Thanks so much for this. Thanks so much. All right. All the best to you. That's uh, Lauren Belinsky, uh, public health resident uh, at the University of Calgary. Uh, and the uh, Preventative uh, and Family Medicine Department at the U of C. So uh, part of this team of uh, university students and residents who are kind of on the front lines in a detective sort of sense in doing this contact tracing, they'd be able to more quickly identify cases is, is a big part of keeping this in check. 
Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.